go. Hi, everybody. Would it be all right if we started with prayer? Is that okay? So, um, why don't... The nice man is speaking. We have a guest. Why don't we start with prayer? So, if uh, you're comfortable standing, sitting, whatever, um, in the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit, Amen. Let us pray in the words that our Lord taught us. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our trespasses, as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. For thine is the kingdom, the power, and the glory, forever and ever. Amen. O Christ our God, you promised that when two or more were gathered in your name, that you would be present. We ask that you would be present now here this evening, that you would guard our fellowship and open our hearts to the true knowledge of you. For thou art our God, and to you we lift up glory together with your eternal Father in your life-creating spirit. Amen. Oh, sure. <clears throat> I would prefer to be in the center of the room, but the lectern's over here and my computer's out of juice. Um, my name's Father Evan, and I'm an Orthodox priest here in northern Colorado. And, uh, you know, it's an odd thing to be a priest because as you walk around town looking like I do, uh, people come up to you, and, and in a post-Christian environment, they often ask me, what are you? Uh, you know, why are you dressed like this? And sometimes as Orthodox clergy, we still wear our clerical habit, you know, our, our cassock. And so that's even more confusing for people. They have no idea what you are. Um, usually they'll ask you if you're a Muslim, especially if you're wearing uh, your cassock. So if I wear a pectoral cross, it usually sets them off, but then they're not sure what it is that I'm, you know. Uh, one time I was checking out the grocery store and the clerk said to me, you know, you look just like one. And I said, like, like what? She said, like a priest. And I said, well, well, I am. And she said, yeah. Well, I was a little confused, and I'm walking out of the grocery store, and I noticed that people were walking in in costumes. It was Halloween. And so the, uh, the assumption was that I was there dressed up like this. Now, um, I don't sleep in my collared shirt, Father Joe. You can... Right, yeah. Um, most days not. Um, uh, but nevertheless, as an Orthodox priest, especially in the West, uh, it's an odd thing. So, you know, some other examples of that. I, I am a married clergyman. Um, for most Western Christians, if they meet a priest, they would immediately assume that I'm Roman Catholic. So when I'm out with my wife, it causes some very unusual circumstances. So once, my Spanish is okay, but a Spanish lady came up to me and asked for my blessing. And as I offered it to you, she asked me, and who's this woman with you? And my Spanish isn't that good. So I told her that was my sister. <laughs> it was the best I could do. Um, you know, thank you, Matt, for inviting me to be here. Noah, it's nice to meet you. It's nice to be with all of you tonight. Um, and I appreciate the opportunity to talk a bit about orthodoxy. Um, I was born uh, an Orthodox Christian. And my journey towards Christ, uh, while nurtured you know, in my Orthodox upbringing, was personalized, as I think it has to be for every believer, you know, in my teens and in my 20s. 
And I would say today, I'm saved. But I would also say, I'm being saved. And I would also say, I will be saved. And we'll get a little bit to how orthodoxy looks at salvation, but in my time as an undergraduate, I went to Boston College and I studied uh, business management and accounting because that's what my father wanted. And I got a double major and studied philosophy and Christian apologetics because that was what I was interested in. And as I made my way through college and graduated, um, I, I wouldn't say that my desire was to, quote-unquote, serve the church officially, uh, to be a priest or to work in some ministry. I didn't have that in the back of my mind. At that time in my life, really, my Christianity was important to me, and my study of Christian apologetics was really about my own understanding of what it meant to be a Christian vis-a-vis -vis the world and the other competing ideologies that were out there. But I graduated from undergrad and went off to work in the business world. And this is kind of a contradiction. Having studied Christian apologetics, I got into the business world and into uh, land development, but then quickly got into, and I don't really say this very, I don't even think a couple of my parishioners are here because at liturgy this morning I mentioned I never thought to tell anybody that I was going to be here tonight. Um, I don't think my parishioners know this. I got into the gaming industry, which is an odd detour. Um, but I sold uh, and started a gaming supply company. So, you know, like raffle tickets and scratch tickets and all of that. It's not a, a Christian business, but I ended up in that. And while in the midst of that rather debauched reality, felt the first vocational call to go to seminary. And what does that mean uh, in orthodoxy? A vocational call, I, I know Father Joe understands it, and maybe even Noah to a degree, you're, you're at seminary now, and Matt, didn't you attend seminary? Um, you know, the Holy Spirit really spoke to my heart and, and invited me to consider the idea that I would be, become a priest. Um, eventually, uh, I struggled with that for a while, um, but in 1995, uh, I made my way to Holy Cross, uh, which is an Orthodox seminary in Boston, Massachusetts, and I received my Master's in Divinity. Um, for the Orthodox, uh, a Master's in Divinity is a four-year uh, Master's. It comprises both a Master's in Theology and then a Master's in Divinity. It's 185 credits. And so it's a rather rigorous reality. But nevertheless, having finished that, I was ordained and assigned to my first parish uh, after graduation in 2002. And I served my first parish, a large Orthodox community in um, the metro area of Denver, about 1,400 uh, uh, parishioners, for five years. And while I was there, um, I got to do some interesting things. One of them was I was invited to become professor at Colorado Christian University and taught New Testament and early Christian literature. That was an amazing experience because it was really my first encounter with Christianity, I would say, in the Protestant world. I had gone to a Catholic university, so I was really well versed in Catholic theology, having studied under Catholic professors and doing an apologetics degree at a Catholic institution. But Protestantism was really kind of a world that I wasn't aware of. And so when I went to Colorado Christian University, which is an evangelical, how many, you guys know CCU, right? 
So as, as I taught there, it was really my first exposure um, to the Protestant world. Um, and then 10 years ago, um, my bishop, who's in Denver, and I entered into a dialogue about founding an Orthodox community in Loveland, Colorado. There's an Orthodox church here in Fort Collins. There are a couple in Cheyenne. There's one in Frederick and, and Berthet and Erie and Boulder, but there wasn't one in Loveland, Colorado, and so I went to him with the idea of starting a church plant. And so we started a mission parish with just a handful of families, six families. It's about 20 people. And in those 10 years, we've grown tremendously. And we just purchased and are building an Orthodox church, so an ancient kind of Byzantine-styled Orthodox temple is being constructed on 29th Street across from Loveland High School. Is that the one where you're driving down Taft towards Loveland, and then it's like on the side of the road with like the purple... The purple. Uh, it's on 29th. So if you're okay. coming down, to, you know where Lake Loveland is? Yeah. Okay, so Lake Loveland, Loveland High School, right across the street. It is right on the road. Yeah. Okay. I think I know. You know where it is. I would highly suggest or highly encourage you that when we're done, come and see it. Um, huh? I just want to see the Byzantine style. Yeah, it's a, it'll be a beautiful church. Uh, we, we, hoped, we were hoping to be open and ready by Easter. Uh, we've been delayed as all construction projects are. Uh, we'll probably be opening the church sometime the end of April. Um, and we've secured, uh, again, this is something we can talk about later, uh, an Orthodox iconographer. So if you've ever seen pictures of the interiors of Orthodox churches, the entire inside of the church is painted with scenes from Scripture. And so the Orthodox iconographer will begin that project in probably July. Uh, with the hopes that the entire inside of the church will be covered in the life of Christ uh, in pictorial form. Just for my knowledge, yeah. iconographer would be someone who specializes in... The writing of icons, yeah. yeah. Mm -hmm. Just making sure. Just making sure, yeah. That's his sole job. And he, this iconographer that we have is from Barcelona. Um, we're fortunate to have him because he has two very large commissions in the United States, and he fell in love with the idea that we were building this mission parish and said... I'll take the commission and not charge you what I usually charge. So uh, it'll, it'll be quite a project when it's done, so I hope you'll come see it. Um, additionally, you know, I get the opportunity to lecture all over the U.S. I was just in uh, St. John's University in Collegeville, um, Minnesota, which is a, a Benedictine monastery and, and a Catholic university. Spent a week there talking and delivering a paper on community formation and Christian formation. Um, so I talk a lot to Orthodox groups and non-Orthodox groups. Um, I host a live call-in radio show. It's called Orthodoxy Live. Uh, you can listen in. It's an international program. We get callers from all over the world calling and asking about Christianity. Uh, every question from explain the Trinity to what do Christians think about dating uh, to what happens to a dog when it dies. Um, <laughs> is Jesus really the Son of God? Uh, that airs on the first and third Sundays of every month, and you can find it at ancientfaith.com. Um, I've published a lot, but my first book is in the works. It's, it's probably going to come out this year. Um, it's going to be on the Christian practices of prayer, fasting, and almsgiving, as found in the Sermon on the Mount. And um, probably my greatest joy is 
while I was in seminary, I had an opportunity to found an organization that builds schools for children in Africa. And so we have five schools that we've built in Uganda and in Kenya. I have about 1,200 students on an annual basis who attend those schools. Uh, we just started a partnership with the University of Maryland to do agricultural work in those schools, teaching them how to do sustainable farming, uh, drip irrigation, crop rotation. Um, so we provide clean water and solar power, uh, sanitation, housing, and food. Um, and, and you can find that at snef.org, S-N-E-F.org. Um, last, but most importantly, as I said, I'm married. I have four children uh, from a high school to kindergarten, uh, three girls, one boy. And when I have time, I like to ski, being a Colorado native, but I love to fly fish. So, and according to the canon law of the Orthodox Church, a priest cannot kill an animal. But, I can't kill anything, but a priest can fish because the apostles were fishermen. So, any good priest is a fly fisherman, as far as I'm concerned. <laughs> now, yeah, it is. Well, trolling ain't fishing. <laughs> um, well, where, where do I start? How do I take you know, an hour, hour and a half, and share with you what orthodoxy is? I mean, that is an impossible task. And in fact, uh, I shared with Matthew, my schedule over the last several months has been rather busy. I've been flying and going around and lecturing. I mean, even to the point, a couple of my prisoners came, I think, because I host a weekly Bible study that's broadcasted. And we haven't been able to hold it all of January, so you just probably miss hearing me blather on about things. But um, with that being said, uh, I sat in the parking lot right over here for the last 50 minutes and furiously typed out some notes uh, that I thought might be helpful in sharing with you about what is orthodoxy and how do you compare, contrast, find similarities between Roman Catholicism and orthodoxy, Protestantism and orthodoxy, and how do you in general just understand orthodoxy? Now, I had a a professor at seminary who was a New Testament scholar. He happened to be a celibate and ordained and a bishop. His name was John. And he stood about, I don't know, 410. Little man, very erudite, soft-spoken, and rather lovable. And he had written a lot on the Gospel of John, and as a result, Harvard hosts these really wonderful international conferences, and he was invited to be the main speaker. And as students, we thought, oh, this is going to be horrible. Because he's so soft-spoken, his accent is so thick, he's so mild-mannered, they're going to eat him alive. So he had told us that he was going to do this lecture, and, and we worried and fretted over it. And uh, then finally, one of us went up to him and said, you know, your grace, what are you going to do? At Harvard, what are you going to say? And he used the diminutive Greek phrase for children. He said, you know, my little children, don't worry. He said, I'm going to talk about Jesus. <laughs> you know, when we talk about orthodoxy, sometimes it bothers me. Because we're talking about this term, right, or this church. And the reality is we're talking about Christ, and we're talking about his body. That is important. 
But I think sometimes to distinguish, you know, what is it that Orthodox believe? What is it that Roman Catholics believe? That can sometimes be destructive, right? So what I hope to do in the next, I don't know, 50, 60 minutes, is do something that's constructive, right? What do we say about Christ? Now, in order to do that, and when I was talking to Matt, um, I realized that I probably have to do a little bit of nomenclature and a little bit of orientation because how many of you have been inside an Orthodox church? So, once. How many of you have met an Orthodox priest? Everybody can say that now, right? Before tonight, how many of you have never met an Orthodox priest? Yeah, most, right? Um, well, you know, if, if you go to a museum and, and you walk through these museums and you get to the religious section in the museum, you often find under glass all the Orthodox stuff. You know, here is a chalice from the 8th century. You know, here is an icon painted in the 3rd century, right? And I remember the first time that I went to the Metropolitan Museum in New York and saw all of those pieces under the glass, and I wanted to cry. Because they're not museum pieces, right? The Orthodox Church is a living, breathing thing who promotes and teaches a life in Christ and has produced millions of martyrs even in the last hundred years and through its own witness has shared the gospel. And so orthodoxy is a real thing. Um, it's not just this ancient, Byzantine, shrouded in incense church. I mean, even if you have some similar or some familiarity with it, it often seems just exotic. I mean, for those of you who've maybe encountered it, it just seems shrouded in ritual and big beards. I don't have a big beard. Yeah, in fact, I had a Russian lady come to my parish, and she wasn't sure if I was really an Orthodox priest. And her name was Natasha. And she said, Father, I have three problems. Yes, Natasha, what are they? Number one, your beard. It needs to be big beard. I said, okay, Natasha. Second problem. In Orthodox Church, we stand. Never sit. And you'll find that in my parish, having to adopt to an American way of life, we've put pews. I said, okay, well, you could stand instead of sit in the pews. Okay. Then the third thing she said was, your wife. She is too pretty. <laughs> Priest's wife, not be pretty. And I told her, I, I, I can't help you on, on that one. But, you know, orthodoxy has this story that it, that it tells. And, and the story is that it is the ancient church of the apostles. And I realized just being old isn't good, you know, just because we're older than the Lutherans doesn't make us better. But at the same time, it does challenge you as a Christian to think, how is it that I relate or am, as a Christian, built upon the foundation of orthodoxy? You know, orthodoxy offers to the world the oldest Christian community still in existence. Continuous places of prayer from the apostolic times. So do you remember when St. Paul went to the coast of Greece 
and he wintered in Nicopolis. Okay? You, you read that in the epistles? Go to Nicopolis. You'll find the church that he founded. It's still there. And the bishop of that church is known the bishop of the apostolic see of St. Paul. And a continuous line from St. Paul to the current bishop in that city of Nicopolis can be drawn. And it's an Orthodox church. When I was a little boy, I remember having to say in class one day, I don't know if it's politically correct to do this anymore, we had to go around and say what religion we were. So I said, I'm Greek Orthodox. And so my classmate said, do you believe in Zeus? <laughs> and I was completely confounded. I, what, what do you mean? And others said, oh, you're Jewish, but Greek? You know? And so I went home, and I was talking to my, my grandfather, and my grandfather said, you tell them that you are original Christian. <laughs> and then he said, and he, he could be a little harsh, he said, do these peoples, that's how he called, you know, he didn't have the word for children yet in English, do these peoples have Bibles? <laughs> yes, Papu. Do they not know where Thessalonica is? It's Greece. Corinth is Greece. Now, orthodoxy is this living church that isn't Roman Catholicism without a pope. That's how some people describe it. You're just Catholic, but you don't have a pope, right? Or you're some sort of deviant form of maybe Protestantism, kind of heretical, we're not really sure, believe in works. Um, in fact, one of the recent converts to orthodoxy in my parish first showed up and said to me, you know, I'm a little ticked off because I read this book about orthodoxy. And I said, yeah. And she says, you guys say that you're the ancient church and that you're the one true church. I said, yeah. She says, well, that ticks me off. I said, why? And she says, well, how can you say that? And I said, well, where do you go to church? And she told me. And I said, well, what do you say? And she said, well, I guess we say we're, we're, the, we're the truth. I said, well, good. I mean, would you want to go to a church that said, we're not sure. We might be true. We might be the inheritors of the truth and revelation of Jesus Christ and his apostles, but probably not. Well, obviously the claim that orthodoxy makes is that it is the church founded by Christ and his apostles. Forgive the assertion. It has to be examined. It has to be tested. But it is how the orthodox view themselves. So when I got ordained, I didn't get a certificate that said, you are now a orthodox priest. But rather it said, the servant of Christ, Evan Armitas, has been ordained into the great church of Jesus Christ by the apostolic laying on of hands. That's the understanding. So the name orthodox is actually a name applied by the West. We don't call ourselves orthodox except when we're trying to distinguish ourselves in a Western context. If you go to ancient Christian countries like Armenia or Georgia, even Turkey, my father-in-law who grew up in Turkey, his passport simply says Christian, right? It doesn't say that he's Greek. It doesn't say that he's Romanian. It doesn't say he's Serbian or Ukrainian or Egyptian or Lebanese. Um, a lot of people will say, oh, you're the priest of the Greek church. No, I'm not the priest of the Greek church. One way for you to understand that is, Father Joe, you're not the priest of the Polish Catholic Church, are you? 
or the Irish Catholic. You're the priest at the Catholic Church, and Catholic is universal. And so the same is true for Orthodox. If you go to any Orthodox Church anywhere in the world, it is in communion with every other Orthodox Church everywhere in the world. Okay? Um, and so at present, um, it's best to understand not orthodoxy as some sort of nationalistic, ethnic, separate, distinct, dissimilar groupings of odd churches, but rather one holy Catholic and apostolic church, as the creed would state it. Um, now, people always want to talk numbers to try to kind of get a reference point. You probably are aware that Roman Catholics have about a billion members. Okay? The next largest population, if we were to group Christians under these so-called titles, would be Orthodox Christians. Uh, 360 million. The next large group would be Lutherans. 76 million. And so it goes. And so in the West, it's odd because most Christians have never heard of Orthodoxy. Is that true? And yet it's the second largest, if you will, body of believers in the world. And there's reasons for that. In the West, Orthodoxy is much smaller. You know, it's sort of this unknown, or as some call it, the greatest secret of Christianity. And there are two big reasons for that that I'll just cover briefly just to give you again a sense of it. You know, the Great Schism. Have you guys covered that in any of your... No. So how many of you would say you're well-versed in church history? We've got one. We've got two and a partial. Well, Father Joe, jump in if any time you disagree. <laughs> just kidding. <laughs> you had one church. Okay? Christ revealed the truth of the Father, right? He manifested himself in the flesh as the way, the truth, and the life, and at his baptism revealed the Trinity, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, okay? The Spirit came to rest upon him. He sent that into the world. He commissioned his apostles. He was crucified. He died. He resurrected. He ascended into the heavens, okay? We're all good so far. And the church began, Pentecost. But... I think sometimes when we mark the start of the Church of Pentecost, we're, well, that's a little shaky. Because what is the church? It's the body of Christ. And being in the presence of Christ is the kingdom. And the church is the kingdom on earth, right? Militant, not triumphant, because we, we have to wait for that reality, hopefully that all of us enter into that reality. But the church began in Christ and continued and didn't sort of have a 50-day holiday. Well, we waited for Pentecost. But we know for certain that at Pentecost, the pouring out of the Holy Spirit enlivened the church and emboldened it in a way that's hard to express. Now, that reality of this unified, spirit-filled church existed for how long? How long did that unified presence and witness of Christianity last for? thousand years. So we go, I, I was hoping there's going to be a marker, but so we go from quote-unquote day of Pentecost, we march down from millennium at 1054, and we've got one church. So if you were to go to church, if you were to say I was a Christian, you wouldn't say I'm a Roman Catholic. You wouldn't say I'm an Orthodox. You wouldn't say I'm a Methodist, a Baptist, I'm non-denom, 
I'm, you know, <laughs> evangelical. Yeah. Well, I mean, you know, I mean, it's like it's sort of like this. I mean, this is a side note, but you you have to realize that as a Western Christian, you've inherited only one strain of the Protestant Reformation. You've inherited the radical reformers idea of the invisible church that has no priesthood, no sacraments, right? Not not even baptism, not even Eucharist, right? So so what I'm saying is that if you were a Christian, you were just a Christian and you went to the church. You didn't have choices, okay? And that unified time, thank you. We'll, we'll put a little dates up here. It makes us feel like we're, you know, doing something. So we have, you know, zero. We go all the way down here. We got 1054, and we have what's called the Great Schism. And the Great Schism is a split in the church. It's the first real and significant ch church split. Yeah, some will talk about in here, in this New Testament period, you've got Gnostics, right? You've got other heretical groups, but they're pretty much dealt with. You know, in the early apostolic writings in this period, apostolic, did I get that right? Call this the New Testament era. Do we, you guys have a rough sense of when this ends, right? So, you know, we'll kind of give it this date, approximately. Gospel of John, right? Somewhere in here, maybe, right? Earliest part is 55, 1 Thessalonians, right? You guys okay? Okay. These early apostolic fathers are people like Ignatius, Irenaeus, Polycarp. They knew... Apostles. Okay? So this period of time is important to Christians. Why? Because whatever you are today, you can still look to this period and say, this seems to be the path towards Christian unity because we were able to do it for a thousand years. Right? Then we have this split. And... Roman Catholics end up here in the West. And now we'll just call Eastern Orthodox down here. Okay? At the time, we've got five Christian centers. Rome, Constantinople, Antioch, Jerusalem, and Alexandria. Right? At that time... Rome is here. The other four are here. That's the split. What was the split over? We can talk about that a little bit later, but it's mainly about authority. Who is in charge of the church? And Rome answers the Pope as Supreme Pontiff, right, Vicar of Christ. And the East answers, no, it's Synodal. And she points back to the church's history here and says, there was never a time in which there was one bishop over all the church. Right? So they, they split. Yeah. Can I make a clarification on synodal? Mm -hmm. uh, just like general, I guess So Vatican II does a lot to come back to this model, College of Bishops. So synodal means that as a body, the church is organized under the communion of bishops, not a singular bishop. 
So my ordination is through the local bishop, as it would be in a Roman Catholic church. However, again, Father Joe, jump in because your Roman Catholic theology and ecclesiology may be a little bit stronger than an Orthodox priest. But in a Roman Catholic understanding, that authority is derived from the papal see. Is that a fair? Through your local bishop. So his assignment comes from the pope. No, the oh, bishops, the bishop. right, yeah. right. So Orthodox churches are self-governing, right? Um, now this split, 2018, we still have it, right? You still have Orthodox and Roman Catholic, okay? It's not until 1980 that we start talking again. Hey, you guys almost went a thousand years. We almost did. Now, that's one of the reasons why when you come into the West, you don't find a lot of Orthodox churches. You find a rollout of Roman Catholic churches because all of the expansion that occurs in the West happens under the Roman Catholic Church. The churches of the East are all Eastern. They don't come to the New World until, really, the 1950s. This is when you find the first immigration of you know, Russians, Greeks, and the rest into America. So many of our parishes are only 50 years old, okay? Now, what happens up here in this top branch is we have a big deal here in 1517. What is it? The Protestant Reformation, right? So Luther, right? And we still have Lutherans today, but we know that this starts to really fracture not soon after, right? And so that you have these continued branching, right? It just keeps going, keeps going. So last count, something like 30,000 Protestant denominations, right? So hard to say, you know. Now, so that, that's one, one major reason this is a very quick run through church history. Any questions about it? But this is a major reason why in the West you don't, you don't find a lot of Orthodox churches because we're just not in the West. We're in the East and kind of don't start showing up until here. And don't start talking. We don't start talking until here. Is Greek Orthodox Eastern Orthodox? Yeah, like I said, that's like saying I'm Irish Catholic. Oh, okay. You're Catholic. Yeah. If you say you're Greek Orthodox, you're Russian Orthodox, you're Syrian, it's Orthodox. That's why I said I kind of like the title because it's a misnomer. Right? In fact, the title of Greek was leveled at the church by Charlemagne. It was a derogatory term. It meant pagan, right? If you look at scripture. So, so Orthodox really don't want to use the term, but it's used as a derogatory term against it. Okay? Not so much anymore because we've lost those historical arguments, right? But uh, that's any other questions about this kind of brief timeline? Okay. What happens to orthodoxy, though? Well, um, in the 1400s, maybe put it up here, you have crusades occurring, right? And what are the crusades? Western Christians entering into Eastern Christian lands and sacking them. Um, now, of course, a lot of that was also Western Christians going into the Ottoman-held empire, 
and trying to recapture the lands held by the sultans and the, and the caliphate, right? But they're also showing up in, in Orthodox Christian countries and burning and looting. And eventually they come to the capital city of the Orthodox world, Constantinople, New Rome, and they burn it and pillage it and rape and steal. And this is really where we can say at this last crusade episode that the East goes, we're out. We're not talking to you guys anymore. Because in this period right here, there's attempts to sort of mend the gap. But when this last crusade happens and the sacking of Christian lands becomes rampant, we just go, well, how, how can we even have a conversation? You mean 1204? Oh, thank you. Yeah. 1400s it falls. But the crusade, yeah. So these sackings occur, and it just basically knocks the wind out of any dialogue. Okay? Then orthodoxy falls under the Ottoman Empire. Right? And then when it emerges from that, in the 1900s, it goes under communism. We haven't had a good go. <laughs> um, what the Ottoman Empire did was basically martyr millions. And then communism finished us off. Uh, Albania, by all records, had every Orthodox church gone. Every, every church. Imagine in America, every church, every Protestant church is raised to the ground. Every seminary closed, all the clergy imprisoned or killed, all of the church property confiscated, complete devastation. So that as orthodoxy emerges coming out in the 50s and then, you know, gosh, communism's not done until here the 1990s, right? So we've only had about 30 years of freedom. Now, that's not true in all Orthodox countries, is it? Go to Egypt. The Orthodox in Egypt, you probably see in the news, we constantly have our churches bombed and machine gunned and blown up, right? So we have a completely different history, and that affects why most of you in the West have just never even heard of us, okay? Does that help? Just give you a perspective. Okay, now, as I said to you a little bit earlier, you know, our self-understanding is a little triumphalistic, and I get that. You know, we have this self-understanding that this is Christ's church, founded, nurtured by the apostles, preached and taught by the fathers. How many of you have heard of the fathers? Just a couple. Have you read any of the fathers? The early church fathers? Early and what we would even call the golden era, the Cappadocians, like Basil the Great, John the Chrysostom, Golden Mouth, Gregory the Theologian. You need to read all these people. If you don't, you're, you're living really, I don't know if, if you guys who've read some of them, would you say without a firm understanding of the patristic writings, you're on thin ice, especially if you're an apologist. These are the champions of Christian thought. Okay, so let me give you some examples. How many of you believe that Christ has two wills? You better. How many wills does Christ have? Does he only have one? He has two wills, doesn't he? What are they? Human and divine. Okay. How many natures does he have? 
two. Is he one person or two? He's one. How can you even answer those questions without the writings of the patristic fathers? Because you're not going to find that in your Bible per se, but out of Scripture, they'll argue the case for that. Now, you might say, well, what does that have to do with anything? Well, if your Christology is wrong, then uh uh-oh. How do you encounter any apologist if you don't understand the person of Jesus Christ? Okay, how about the Trinity? You guys believe in the Trinity? Do you believe that all three persons of the Trinity are God? Okay, that is an inheritance you have from the patristic writers. All through this period, attempts are made to relegate either the Son or the Spirit below the Father. And our ability to say no, we believe in the consubstantial trinity, three persons or hypostases. You guys are all going, what? No, what is this? But you're an apologetics group, aren't you? So you, you should know these elements of faith and be able to converse in them. In this period of time, you can look at public literature and find that common discourse was on these theological matters. There was complaints that people at the local newsstand were arguing over the hypostases of the Trinity. And here we are over here, and I think we're reading things like The Shack. (laughs) No wonder the atheists have their day with us, because we're no longer versed in the meat of our Christian faith, and we love to trifle in the emotionalism, right? So I'm just kind of making an argument. You should know these writers, okay? There was a Question or a statement? Um, Father, am I right in saying that a lot of the church fathers um, actually debated with pagans? Constantly, yeah. And it's really no different than Than today. Yeah, there's nothing new under the sun. So the pagans uh, that were debating with these early writers, right, and the heresies that were promulgated in their day are all repeated today. And, you know, most people today are Gnostic. You might not even know what that is. But if you read Irenaeus, you'll learn what he says against the Gnostics. And then when you encounter them, you'll have to explain what it is that they are. But you can defeat their arguments because you've got these great writers in your hip pocket and you understand their arguments, right? So while orthodoxy is sort of this thing that you look at and you say, okay, uh, There are these people called Orthodox Christians. What I would argue is that every Christian is based out of this first thousand years. So in a sense, we all have a shared Christian history. So you're all Orthodox. Okay? And, for example, how many books do we have in the New Testament? Come on. 27. Thank you. Even Revelation? took us a while to make sure that that one was in there. Do you know how long it took? About 800 years. That's a while. We debated that one for a while. Okay? But we finally said canon. So we put it in. Now, if you're standing up here with an atheist who argues against the centrality of Scripture, and he knows his history, he's going to say to you, but this book, Revelation, it's a little suspect. And you can say, yes, I agree. We struggled ourselves with its inclusion. And then you can go through the arguments of why it was included. But if you read the New Testament in its current shape and form, because if you read it before the year 800, you wouldn't have had that book in your Bible. Or if you read it even earlier on, you might not have had accounts like 
Uh, do you remember the adulterous woman in John? By the year, mid-300s, that story is not in the Bible. It's added later. Does that bother you? <laughs> it shouldn't. Because who determined what was going to be in the Bible? Council of Nicaea. Well, not the Council of Nicaea. Laodicea, the first listing we have is from a bishop in his festal epistle around Christmas time, Athanasius the Great. And he lists his 27 books, right? And yet even at that time, Scripture is still, it's not set. Does that bother you? Yeah. It does? It shouldn't. Because you had a body, what does St. Paul say? The pillar and bulwark of truth is the church. You had a body of believers, right? That were fostering faith and protecting it, right? So my point being that if today as a Christian you hold Scripture in high esteem, which you should, as the divinely inspired Word of God, you have the church to thank for its delivery. And so you can't ignore this first thousand years. Or for example... Let's say you celebrate Easter. How many of you celebrate Easter? Where does it say in the Bible to celebrate Easter? It doesn't. But the early church determined that the celebration of Easter was essential to Christian practice and faith. And stop calling it Easter. It's Pascha. Did you know that? No. Easter is a pagan feast of fertility. And we only call it Easter in England and America. Everywhere else in the world, it's called Pascha. It's the Passover, the new Passover St. Paul talks about, right? You can call it Easter, it's fine. <laughs> How many of you celebrate Christmas? You have the early church to thank you for that one, too. It's not in the scriptures, but it's something we all do. How about the Lord's Prayer? You know the Lord's Prayer. Which one do you recite? The one we recited. Which one? The one in Matthew. You don't recite the one from Luke. Did you know that? Why don't you recite the one from Luke? Because the early liturgy of the church used the liturgical form of prayer that you find in Matthew. You've inherited that. It's part of your common faith. As a Christian, it doesn't matter where you go to church. Which side's the bride side when you go into a church? The left. And which side's the groom's side? The right. Why? Because when you went into a church in the first millennium, and it's still in the Orthodox Church, the icon of Christ, the bridegroom, was on the right. And the icon of his bride, Mary, which represents all of us in his church, is the left. And so even if you're not a Christian, you go to a wedding, where do you sit if you're with the bride's party? On the left. Um, yeah, I could go kind of on and on on this one. But the reality is, these foundations of Christian thought, of practice, of witness, are rooted in that shared thousand years. And if you're going to be great apologists, then you better know that first thousand years. Because if you get up here in the sticks and weeds of this, you're going to get picked off. Right? So I'll give you an example. Rapture. How many of you believe in the rapture? Wow. Okay. No, don't mean to be too harsh. But it's directly contradicted in Scripture. But rapture is a new one. We came up with this theology of rapture somewhere in here. You don't find it anywhere over here. 
So the question becomes, should I hold this theology of rapture, which is only maybe 70 to 100 years old, and find it nowhere in the writings of the first thousand years? Or should I dismiss that and accept this? It's a question, right? I'll give you another one that's a little bit more meaty. How many of you on a Sunday receive the Eucharist? How many of you understand it to be the body and blood of Christ? Okay, good. <laughs> you use fancy terms and I'm like, got nothing. But if you dumb it down. Body and blood of Christ, right? St. Paul says so. 1 Corinthians 10, 16. The Lord says so. John 6, Luke 24. I mean, I can go on and on, right? But no Christian, no Christian writer, thinker, preacher, name it, in this thousand years ever said that the Eucharist was not the body and blood of Christ. The real body and blood of Christ. How about up here? All sorts of people deny that reality. So if you deny that reality, what is it based on? I can tell you what it's based on if you want to know. Huh? Well, no, it's the movement of the radical reformers who reject the idea of sacraments. There's no priest. There's no priesthood. There are no sacraments. There's no Eucharist. There's no baptism. Those are the people that showed up on the Mayflower. Right? And we've inherited that, that, inherited that in America, right? But Eucharist is found all throughout the first thousand years. And fortunately, for Roman Catholics and Orthodox Christians, it's still found, right? Still, yes? What do you mean by the baptism? By baptism? Yeah. So baptism, so... Like, okay. We still do like baptisms in the Protestant church. You do. Thank God. I'm guessing that's different. No, we still do baptisms, of course. Right. So we find in the early church, how did you enter the church? Through baptism. Right? And even infants are baptized. Okay? And they're baptized, and baptized means immersed. So they're immersed in water in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. And the prayer of confirmation or the gift or the scent of the Holy Spirit was read over them, right? We even see that in the uh, epistles where, you know, uh, Paul corrects, um, you know, someone's entrance into the church by making sure that they're baptized and receiving the gift of the Holy Spirit. Those two things go hand in hand. So there's no confirmation later. It's, it's a one-time act. You are baptized and confirmed. We separated that after the Reformation, okay? So that sacrament or mystery of grace found in the early church, is found in many churches up in this branching, right? But there's an argument between Rome and the post-Reformation and, I'm sorry, Rome and, and the Protestant Reformation, there's an argument about the number of sacraments. I don't know if you ever heard that one. So the Protestants answer, there's Eucharist and there's baptism. The Roman Catholics say, no, there's seven. There's Eucharist, baptism, ordination, uh, funerals, unction, confession, and I think tonsure, okay? Like of a monk, someone's tonsured and, and, and declared a eunuch for Christ, celibate, right? This idea of there's two sacraments of, of Eucharist and baptism, in the radical reformers, this gets X'd out. And baptism and Eucharist go away. So you don't have to have Eucharist or baptism, Right? Or baptism becomes an external rite in which a Christian just gets wet, but nothing ontological happens. 
There's no change in your anthropology. Right? But St. Paul says in Romans 6, right, that you enter into the death of Christ and you enter into the resurrection of Christ. You are a new creation. You're regenerated in your baptism. So, you know, that's an important thing to think about. You know, does Christianity still profess what this first thousand years professed and understand these mysteries of faith, right, that we participate in on a regular basis? Baptism not, there's only one, but Eucharist constantly, right? Constantly. We always are receiving the Eucharist. Every Sunday, that's what the apostles are doing. They weren't doing praise music, <laughs> right? They didn't do that. They did the Eucharist. They did it every Sunday. Okay, we doing okay? Okay, any questions? So I've just kind of been making this argument that, hey, there's a conversation that we need to have up here back with this. And maybe the easy way to look at it is to say, what's the overlay? How much of what I profess as a Christian today would overlay there? And do they match up? And if there is dissonance, what should I do about it? And is it worth at least a careful examination that my thought, and I'm not picking on you, but that maybe rapture, hmm, maybe it's not robust enough because I don't find it here. And maybe the arguments for it are off. Could be. Could be. All right. As I said already, we ended up finally talking here. Okay, yeah. Um, question about deuterocanonical. Mm -hmm. Is the same synonymous with the Apocrypha in the Roman Catholic? Yeah. So, is a brief history of how that... I'm still not entirely clear. Clear on the deuterocanonical or apocryphal works yeah. of Scripture. There's a lot to say here. Um, for those of you who are not familiar with the term, deuterocanonical or apocryphal books are those books that do not have a text in Hebrew, but only in Greek. So Tobit, Maccabees, the Wisdom of Sirach. Have you guys heard of any of these? Okay. So th those books are often included in a Protestant Bible at the end as apocryphal. Okay? But that's something that happened over here. Okay? But in your Bible that you would have picked up back in here, the deuterocanonical books would have been included in the entire canon. They wouldn't have been separated and placed elsewhere. New Testament. You're talking about apocryphal deuterocanonical only refers to Old Testament works. So they were included yeah. in the early days. Yeah. And, and New Testament writers allude to them. That's one of the reasons why they were included. Now, the best way to understand this is, do we as Christians profess hierarchy of Scripture? Are some passages more important than others? You better not. Are you asking rhetorically? No, I'm asking. What do you mean by more important? Okay, how many people have preached on the temple tax? You remember? Peter goes fishing, gets the money. Jesus goes and has him pay the temple tax. Is that an important passage of Scripture? Essential for salvation? No. No, it's not. Right? The Gospel of John is an intro, intro to the passion narrative. Right? How many chapters do you have? Ten. And then all of a sudden you're at the raising of Lazarus in chapter 11, and off you go until the end of it, just dealing with his death and resurrection. Right? So is there a hierarchy to the Gospel of John? He spends 50% of his time on basically one week. So 
was he just loquacious? Or was he trying to basically emphasize that this component of the New Testament is more important than anything else? The narrative over Christ's death and resurrection is the lens through which we view all scripture, right? And certain elements within even that narrative are more important than others. So in those last days, we hear the story of the woman who anoints Jesus and his disciples are upset at the extravagant waste and he says, leave her alone. Wherever the gospels preach, this will be told as a memorial unto her. It's an important passage. But it's in no way as important as the passage that comes at the end of the gospel in the restoration of Peter when he's asked, do you love me? In other words, we have always understand in Christianity that there's hierarchy in Scripture. How many of you spend a lot of time in numbers? You just really dig into numbers. Matt? Matt? <laughs> Problematic, right? But foundational stories are all over Genesis. You already know that innately. So I'm answering that question through this means of saying, well, okay, Deuterocanonical, what's the problem? Everybody understood they're not essential readings, but they're part of the canon, right? They're just part of the scriptures. The differentiation is that they weren't written, or we don't have them originally in their Hebrew form. We only have the Septuagint version. But I got another problem for you. What is the Bible of the apostles? The Masoretic or the Septuagint? The message version. Huh? The message version. <laughs> <laughs> no, it's the Septuagint. It's the Greek version. They used the Septuagint Old Testament. They didn't use the Masoretic, which is the Hebrew version. Key passages, Isaiah, virgin versus young maid. Septuagint identifies that passage and says Parthenos, a virgin, right? The Hebrew Masoretic says a young maiden, which could be assumed to be a virgin. Now, that's not exactly what was going through the heads of the apostolic writers or the writers of the New Testament, but in that time period, they were using the Septuagint. There's other key passages in the Old Testament that the Septuagint, if you will, interprets out of the Masoretic. And so as Christians, we would say, well, we use the Septuagint version of the Old Testament. It's not that we dismiss the Masoretic, but if we look at uh, sort of which one is more important to us as Christians, we'd say the Septuagint. So deuterocanonical apocryphal works are part of canon, but they're of second importance. They're, 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 and, and we understand that through the hierarchy of Scripture. Okay? When is it the second importance? Do they still have the same effect? They can still influence doctrine? Well, that's a great question. So the question is, can they influence doctrine? Um, that's a loaded question. Because uh, I'm going to point back to here. We have this period of the second of seven ecumenical councils. You guys ever heard of that? And the universal church still to this day says these are pretty darn important. And when we talk about doctrine, I'm going to use a different word. I'm going to say dogma. And the only thing that is that can't be changed in the Christian expression is the dogma of the church. And all dogmas relate to Jesus Christ. Period. So when you ask me that question, I have to answer back by saying, there is no variation in the dogma of the church. There, there, there can't be. 
once and delivered. So the dogma of the church is set in the revelation and preaching of the revelation of Christ, the preaching of the apostles, the, the guarding by the fathers. And that same dogma is the dogma that we have till to this day. So apocrypha or anything can't change dogma. So if we, Joey, if, if you agree on the dogma, the secondary issues don't really matter necessarily as much. And, and some of these other things we've mentioned could be secondary issues? Or yeah, I mean, you know, th this is where, you know, some of you, have you heard of the bullseye argument, mm -hmm. right? I think it's a pretty bad argument because what's the boundary? So you might say, I'm not saying you would, but let's say someone says, well, the Eucharist is a non-essential. So it's over here? Or is it here? Where is it? When you split it as essential and not essential, I don't know. Yeah. Uh, yeah, exactly. What are the, right. So if we're saying, is Eucharist part of guarding the dogma of Christ? And this is where Christians have difficulty right now because they're arguing over these things. Plenty of Christians would say, Eucharist is not a dogma. It's not essential. It has nothing to do with the person of Christ. We can do it or not do it, right? Mm -hmm. But then we have the words of Christ. He who eats my flesh and drinks my blood abides in me and I in him and I will raise him up the last day. And if you do not eat my flesh, you have no life in you. Right? And then by verse 66 in the sixth chapter, people say, this is a hard saying. I cannot bear it. And they walk away from him. So some would say, that's a pretty central thing. So, you know, it's, it's a hard, this is, the, this is the difficult work of Christian unity. And I don't think we're going to solve it tonight. <laughs> so uh, is there a different analogy that you would put out instead of the target analogy then? I think this is just a really bad analogy. Uh, you know, I'm not saying that I necessarily have a better one. I think you could probably tell from my argument what I'm saying is that this is probably our safe spot. I think we have to come in here and look here and say, what is it that we were able to agree upon for a thousand years? Why, why would this not be our basis? And so, for example, we can go here and we can test something. We can say, all right, is Eucharist essential to Christian life and practice in this period of time? We can say emphatically it is. So if it's not here, my argument is to say, what are we relying upon here? Why are we dismissing this? So this analogy, it's, it's, it's just too soft for me. I don't think it, it holds enough water because I can place the target here, yeah. right, in time. I can place the target here. I don't know. It seems contextual. Maybe. Say, I, don't, I don't know if it necessarily follows to say that because it's closer to the apostles, it's necessarily correct. Doesn't say, no, I, I agree with you, but you've got to test it. Sure. Okay, I'll give you an example. So does Paul every Sunday celebrate the Eucharist? Yeah, he did. Does the Gospel of Luke say knowledge of the risen Christ comes through the Eucharist? Okay. The road from Jerusalem to Emmaus, two are walking, Luke and Cleopas. They arrive at the inn. They do not know who is with him. They compel him to come in. He sits, he blesses, he breaks, and he gives. Same language, same Greek as we find in the, don't call it the Last Supper, call it the Mystical Supper. The supper? Mystical Supper, yeah, because it keeps going. It's not the last time he did it, right? 
He, he uses that same language there. And what does the text say? Upon receiving the Eucharist, their eyes are opened and they recognized him in the, a euphemistic phrase, the breaking of the bread. That hour, they get up, they go back to Jerusalem, and they tell the eleven who are hiding out and those with them who had said that the Lord has risen and been seen by Cephas, that the Lord was known to them in the Eucharist. So when you say, okay, I don't know just because it's old, it's authentic or essential, I would agree. But test it. Just kind of go through the arguments and say, all right, well, does Paul think it's essential? What does he say in 1 Corinthians chapter 11 about those who receive the Eucharist unworthily? They get sick and they die. And they drink judgment upon themselves. So for St. Paul, the Eucharist was essential. You see what I mean? Yeah. So those are the things I think that we just, you know, if we're, if we're going to be robust, we've got to start to work through those types of arguments, those types of documents, and we've got to, We've got to be able to converse in this world because, Noah, to your point, as I said, I, you know, the target analogy, I don't know what that really does, but I think this is a little more rigorous. Sure. So, as you talk about needing a guide um, to understand or interpret this early period of church history and rightly comparing someone like John Calvin with, let's say, Basil the Great, and if you use John Calvin's arguments, you might say, well, I think I can dismiss Basil, and is that going to be difficult? I, th I think, yeah, it's going to be difficult. But I think the more you read Basil, the harder it will be to reconcile what John Calvin's saying. So you shouldn't just read John Calvin and ignore Basil. You should right. Read, read them both. Lay them out next to each other. And I think you'll find that Basil's going to trump Calvin pretty easily. You know? I mean, but Calvin has some ideas, like, for example, total depravity, that for many Christians has gone unquestioned. And it's a heretical notion. Right? You understand total depravity. Man has a sin nature. Is that problematic? You're not sure? How many of you would say, yes, man has a sin nature? Very problematic. In what way? So here, and this is part of, I was going to get into this a little bit later, but part of the problem with East and West talking is that, where did my pen go? We have different language now. Okay, but in biblical terms, here's your Greek, usia which stands for nature. Okay, so let me ask you a question. Who creates nature? God alone. So only God can create nature, right? So if I say man has a sin nature, what have I just said? God has created sin. Can't say it. This anthropology is completely incorrect. We have to say that man has created good because that's what the text says. Very good is what God says. Now, is man disfigured? Is he, is he, is he uh, affected by the fall? Yeah. But has he got a sin nature? That's something that John Calvin's arguing pretty hard about. And it's completely erroneous. Now, John Calvin also didn't believe in what? Free will. Did he? 
Irresistible grace, huh? He redefines it. He redefines it, thank you. <laughs> but, and you're a much better Calvinist than I am. Oh, I'm not a Calvinist. Oh, you're not? I thought you studied a little bit about Reformed theology. Okay. I thought he was I thought he was a Reformed theologian. I had to debate a Reformed theologian at CU Denver, or no, CU Boulder, about two months ago. And uh, it was a, you can find it on a Facebook Live. Um, I don't think he did so well, especially when we brought this up. He was kind of stuck. Um, so, so, for example, how did we get here? I asked the question, do you believe in the sin nature? And I hope you'll leave here no longer believing it. Because it's not true. Man does not have a sinful nature. He does not have a nature created by God to be sinful. It's almost like a sliding scale. You have a percentage disfigurement. Are you, like you're a percentage broken? That's a great question. Is that like coming to like a works to work against that? So what do we say? We say there's this thing called the fall, right? And the fall is cosmic, right? Meaning... Humanity, and as humanity, and as the chief of creation, with it comes all of the world, right? Is fallen. Okay? So man, at this point, is disfigured. Disfigured. And what are the consequences of that disfigurement? Death, a propensity towards sin, right? Those are the obvious ones. Christ comes. What nature does Christ have? Perfect. He has a perfect nature, but if he has a perfect nature, but let me ask the question differently. Does he have your nature? In that he has a human one. Yeah, but is it sinful, like Calvin would say? It can't be, yeah. right? Yeah. But if he redeems something you don't have, then what happened on the cross? Yeah, what is not assumed is not saved. It's ancient writing of St. Gregory, I think, of Nyssa. Christ redeems human nature, right? But not a nature different than the one you have. If he redeems something you don't have, then what did he do for you? Nothing. So he has to, he has to take on the nature that we have. Was he subject to the same temptations and realities that we are, except he did not sin. And he refashions, so humanity has its nature refashioned, regenerated, right? Regenerate, uh, whatever, regenerated, something like that. Through Christ, we are the new Adam. It's no longer I who live, but Christ who lives within me, right? So humanity, when you ask the question, what happened? Yes, the fall is real. We are disfigured. We move towards death. We have a propensity to sin. And all of us, as St. Paul says, sin, except Christ. And he takes this nature of ours, and upon the cross, and through his ministry, and all of his acts, baptism, transfiguration, all of it, he refashions and regenerates this nature of ours so that the new Adam, right, can participate in the divine life. So, so why wouldn't there be a, a split there? I mean, why is that, I mean, that, do we get that nature upon accepting Christ? We don't get that nature upon birth into the world. 
Why would there be a split there? Yeah, why wouldn't there be? Oh, well, when you're, when you're born, let me make sure I understand the question. Anyone in humanity, why wouldn't they still fall under the disfigured? They do. Exactly. They do. And so it's only upon accepting Christ that we... Yeah, okay. that our nature begins to be so refashioned. That's what I'm saying, is that after the death, because right. of sin, all sin, right. there should be, right. there's still two options. There's still two options, although we would say the seed has been inserted yes. into humanity just as the sin was inserted and had its consequences, but so has the redeemed life. So all of humanity benefits from Christ whether they accept Him or not. True. Okay? So then how would you rephrase it? Because I feel as though I believe what you said after this. Right. Like, like very in-depth, mm -hmm. long explained. Uh, you believe this. You don't believe we have a sin nature anymore. Good. Well, I don't believe that sin nature I'm converting you. To... <laughs> I don't believe it directly qualifies what I intended to say, I suppose. Yeah. Because yeah. as much as I believe that we do not have a sinful nature, Thank you. by your definition, I would say that we have a propriety to sin. Propensity to sin, yeah. That one. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Um, we have a disfigurement. So, but you would... We have an impaired will. Okay. So you would, you would phrase it as we have an impaired will. Sure, you could say that. Our will is not liberated. In Christ it becomes liberated. What's man's true will? To worship the one true God. When liberated, man worships God and follows Him expressly. But when impaired, he becomes self-directed and falls into the passions and the flesh. And so Christ also liberates our will. He doesn't suppress it. He doesn't subvert it. He liberates it. And we freely choose to follow Christ. And the more we freely choose to follow Him, the more we do live a life in Christ, the more our will is liberated. The more we take on the qualities of the Christ and become little Christ. That's what a Christian is. So, I guess I would agree with that. I've generally used sin nature in the sense of a corrupted human nature. Okay. Not in a, like, created by sin. Like, the nature is mm -hmm. created sinful, mm -hmm. but right. it's a human nature right. that is sin-ridden right. and corrupted in that sense. Good, good. But, so, it's good to make that distinction. Okay. It's important. Don't say sin nature. Okay. Thanks. And then you're okay. Now, part of what's going on here is this idea of original sin. Right? Yes. And, and, this, and this is problematic. Because what does original sin say? You inherit the guilt of Adam. It's a mistranslation of Romans 5.12. Okay? Augustine goes off on that track, full-blown. We end up in this idea of we inherit the guilt of Adam. No. You inherit the consequences of his mistake. But you don't inherit his guilt. Right. I mean, uh, so then if, if, a, if a baby inherits the guilt, it must, what? It must go to hell, in a sense. But it hasn't inherited guilt. It's inherited the consequences. Again, there's a whole problem I have with God having to punish and all that because God doesn't have to do anything. Right? somehow have constrained God, you know, he must punish his son, or the wrath of God must be poured out upon the son. Those are problematic statements as well. He loves the son. This seems almost entirely like a equivocation of 
Yeah, I think that's, that, I would be okay with that. The words mean things. Mm -hmm. <laughs> they mean things. Yeah. Gentlemen used to mean that you own, a, you own land. Doesn't mean that anymore. But so when we say nature, keep in mind that you're making a dogmatic statement. The only person that can create nature is God. So you cannot have a sin nature. You can have a disformed, a dif and I think too, here, you know, the ancient church used the term ancestral sin. It didn't use this term original sin. And so it said what happens is you inherit the consequences of Adam's mistake, of his sin, and that is death, propensity to sin. You wouldn't deny that there's something ontological that took place there. Absolutely not. There is something ontological. Yeah. And there's something ontological that happens through Christ. Now remember, if we get down here to the radical reformers, a baptized Christian is only a wet Christian. Right, depends on the reformer. I said radical. Yeah, sure. Okay, a radical reformer says there's no such thing as, as an ontological change in baptism. Do you guys understand that? Like a physical... There is a new creation. There's a regeneration, as St. Paul says it. Yeah. In baptism. So you said the very nature of the person would change. Yeah, that's what we're... That's what we're doing down yeah. here, yeah. <laughs> so, St. Paul in Romans uses this Greek word, is. It's a simple word, into. So he says, don't you know that when you were baptized, you were baptized into the death of Christ? Don't you know that when you were baptized, you were baptized into the resurrection? So you are combined with the death and resurrection of Christ. And so the whole refashioning of the human person occurs. Okay? We can say that. Yes? Yeah, thief on the cross. What happens there? What happens? Yeah. What happens? What's, what's well, let me, let me point out something that I love to point out. When people say, you know, when I was interviewed at Colorado Christian University, they have these dogmatic statements. So do you believe that Scripture is the inalienable Word of God? And I said, no. And the faculty that was interviewing me gasped. And I said, you want me to prove it? Scripture is not perfect, is it? God's perfect. Be careful. Scripture is the best we have that represents the truth of God. But it isn't perfect. Only one is perfect. Right? In Scripture, which gospel talks about the thief on the right going into paradise? Only Luke. What does Matthew Mark say? He curses like the other on the left. But what's the one you agree with? Luke. Because the church made it an interpretation. So the one in Luke is the story that we're going with, okay? He's on the cross, and what does he do? He confesses Christ. And so Christ says, today you will be with me in paradise. He's Christ. He can suspend whatever he needs to suspend. He can do whatever he wants to do, right? But this gets to another question. When you talk about salvation, right, how is your view of it? I would argue that what you've just said gives us a more robust view of salvation than many, many of us are operating under. So is confession salvific? It is on the cross. Is baptism salvific? Is Eucharist salvific? Is love of neighbor? Matthew 25. 
The only criteria of judgment in there is charity. Doesn't he say it? Okay, can we keep going? Do not judge. So if you relinquish judgment, is that salvific? You see what I mean? We get a lot more robust picture of salvation when we start to mine Scripture in this way. So I love what you've just said because the thief on the right, all he did was that. Now, your life may be a combination of those things, and it should be. You stand under a different umbrella, like the talents. You know, you've given more than one. It's, an interest, it's, it's interesting the way you're putting that. I, I guess my, my mind goes, I think, initially to, to context. I'm trying to find the context of Christ through the, the, uh, him doing things like that. that they don't, it doesn't line up perfectly in every example, and yet it still works, mm-hmm. sort of thing. So, you know, as we've been talking about, uh, you know, uh, taking communion mm-hmm. uh, and it, its necessity... Well, he also literally says you pick up your cross and follow mm-hmm. me. Yeah, so, so the know, way of the cross is yeah, salvific. So, so, but literally not picking up the cross. Right. Contextually. Right. Yes. But what the problem is, is that salvation for most of us, and, and we're jumping all over the place, yeah. has been flattened to the atonement. Mm-hmm. Substitutional, penal, right, whatever you want to call it, Bishop Anselm's great idea. Do you know who Bishop Anselm is? He's the one who came up with the idea. Okay. <laughs> I got it from the context of what you were saying. Yeah, 14th century. Okay? But it's problematic. Why is it problematic? Father, wrath, humanity. You guys good so far? Who steps in? Jesus. Jesus. Accepts the wrath of God on the cross. He now pays for our sin debt. Am I doing okay? This isn't my theology. Except, you were kept saying he can, you know, he can suspend whatever he wants to suspend. Clearly, he can't suspend that. Why can't he? Because he had to pay this debt of sin. Who did he pay it to? The Father. You've got a heretical notion. The Father needs payment? He's perfect. Huh? He has a consistent nature. But his nature is imperfect. You've just introduced a necessity. He needs payment. He can't get out of it. Yeah. So this is an idea of the Middle Ages. It's not an idea in the first thousand years. This idea that the Father must be paid. So what does he do instead? Well, he doesn't pay the Father because the Father doesn't need payment. He conquers it. Conquers death. He destroys it. You know, I get it, because this is, trust me, I know that I've just stepped into the abyss of <laughs> atonement, <laughs> worry. I got it. But I'm just trying to point out to you that this schema that you've lived with is just that. It's not a schema that you find in the early fathers, and it's dangerous. Because you've now introduced this idea again. The father needs payment? Again, an early Christian would have said, you've just, know, you've just said a heretical thing because God's perfect. He doesn't need anything. So does the father need payment? Absolutely not. John Calvin was having a hard time with all this and he was trying to put it all logically together himself. 
And he pushes this idea a little bit further along. Now, what also happens is that once your debt is paid, what do you have to do? You just have to accept the payment's been made, right? And also do all, huh? and also do all those other things? Well, hold on. We're just going to stay here for now. I'm going to just, <laughs> I'm not here, right? I want to go back. Yeah, let's stay here for a little bit. So in this schema, is it true that once you agree, you say, okay, I accept that my debt has been paid, and you're saved, right? Yes. Hmm. That sounds like a transaction to me, right? And the question I have for you is, does man or woman, does humanity, get into heaven unchanged? No. So it probably isn't a transaction. What we would say is that salvation is closer to transformation. And so, you know, staying within the schema, I would have to say that in accepting Christ, then something must occur in the person. You cannot just enter heaven unchanged. Sure. Okay. So Protestants have a, have a notion of salvation as being broader than just like justification. Of course. You know, so yeah. Forensic, imputed righteousness. Mm -hmm. Yeah. But um, they, they would see it more as like the stage, right? Mm -hmm. Just this initial justification that happens, you're right. done. Right. Then you now you move into sanctification. Right. Out of appreciation for what mm -hmm. done for you, mm -hmm. what paid for you. Right. Uh, and then ultimately salvation. There's perseverance. Yeah. Okay. So, does everybody follow the stages? Yes. Okay. So, could you contrast that? I think it sounds like what you're about to do with this with your notion of salvation or mm -hmm. and mm -hmm. So, contrasting that with, with Christian thought of the first millennium, you know, there's not a problem with using those terms justification, sanctification and glorification. But keep in mind that those terms are used out of this. Okay? So I would just maybe say back to you, if I drop this, can I still use those terms? Yeah. Yeah. Sure. I think we're okay. But we mean, I mean, but we mean different things. Yeah. But we mean different things. And all I'm trying to do is say, well, let's lose this one. And let's redeem the terms. And then we're okay. So this is part of the difficulty in Eastern Christianity talking to Western Christianity. You say justification, I'm thinking something different, and you're thinking this. And, I'm, and then when we start to explain it to each other, I go, oh, no, that, that doesn't sound right. Right? Yeah. I mean, dikeosini is the Greek in the scriptures. Righteousness, right? Or, and to be dikeosini is to be right-ordered. Okay, so back to our fall, here's the human person. What is he made up of? Three things. Body, soul, what's the last one? Let's call it what St. Paul calls it, noose. He doesn't say mind, he doesn't say intellect, he uses this very important term, noose. And I'm sorry, I can't give you a great translation in English, but it doesn't comprise your will, your intellect, your reasoning power, you know. Anyway, this is what a human person is made up of. In the fall, 
this gets jumbled. So we can say body goes on top, and now the soul and the new serve it. Okay? Isn't that true? Sure. How much time did you spend on your body today? A lot. All of it, basically. Christ comes and he refashions humanity, right? And some of those things he does, he gives us things like prayer and fasting and almsgiving. And what he's doing is he's reordering humankind so that the soul is now served by the body and by the news, right? So when you're talking about this process, you know, we would, we would use this kind of, sometimes we'd use this kind of language to kind of talk about this process and say, yeah, through the process of um, the second one's called sanctification, we'd say this is occurring in the person. But I think there is some problem with saying it's simply linear. You know, it's, is it totally linear? Yeah, <laughs> and, and it's maybe linear in the body, but it, then it's not linear in the kingdom. But maybe it is. I think our notion comes probably more from the Catholic notion. My guess is Protestant. You can correct me if you think I'm wrong. You know, it seems like again, correct me if I'm wrong, but it seems like we took a lot of the categories of Augustine. In fact, mm-hmm. it was a big you know, mm-hmm. Augustinian. Um, and then transformed some Yeah, of kind of repackaged it a little yeah. bit. Mm-hmm. Instead of, because we wanted to get rid of all of these, this works-based salvation, yeah. um, we still kept the, the what I, my understanding again is the Catholic categories, mm-hmm. but reinterpreted them in light of this new kind of Luther's uh, alones. Yes, sola, sola fide, gratia. Right. So right. now, once salvation is faith alone, by, by grace alone, through faith alone, right. in Christ alone, right. through Scripture alone, right. it's now a one, justification is now a one-time deal. We still have that category. We still mm-hmm. have that notion of sacrificial payment, yes. of a debt that is owed, yes. that we can never repay, that Jesus mm-hmm. pays for us. Mm-hmm. So this is actually more foreign, yes. far more foreign to a Protestant, I think. Than I would agree. And even this distinction between body, soul, news, mm-hmm. again, my understanding, again, please correct me, but uh, is like the Thomistic folks following Aristotle would mm-hmm. say, look, this is, we're just body and soul, you're a hylomorphic meaning. <laughs> right? Right. So, you, yeah, oh, sorry, please. No, keep going. So, this, and this is a big interest of mine as philosophical anthropology, so I'm really curious about some of the similarities and differences because I think they have so many implications. Mm-hmm on our notions of salvation, mm-hmm. right? Yeah. So where does East and West, where do the East and West start departing in their philosophical anthropology? I mean, it all looks like you already have here, mm. but I could be wrong. Okay. Father Joe, can you um, add a little more? Yeah, I mean, I think, I think I've been on board with you the whole time. I mean, there's the schism part that mm-hmm. you're not quite yeah. happy about. Right. Um, but, but we're talking. <laughs> we're talking. <laughs> Sin, like we use that term in the church, but it means nothing. 
nothing similar to what Calvin meant. Mm -hmm. um, nothing like sin nature. It's, it's definitely taken from Augustine. And I would say we used, yeah, a lot of the same terms of Augustine, but um, I think Protestants tend to read Augustine as very anti-Pelagian, mm. which he was. He was very, very polemically anti-Pelagian, um, but they don't tend to read his anti-Manichaean stuff, mm. which would seem to completely contradict everything he says in his anti-Pelagian. <laughs> um, so depending on who Augustine's talking to, you get a very different reading of Augustine. Mm. Um, whereas if, if you see him as an anti-Manichaean, he's, he's very much with this schema up here. The, the tripartite anthropology is kind of new to me. It's definitely yeah. Paul, but it's... Yeah. It's not something that we picked up much. It's right. Much more body soul. Yeah, and you, you could. I mean, I don't think any Orthodox would be uh, sort of, you know, go to this sort of two ideas, body, soul, and we would say that the noose resides as the reasoning power over the soul. And we could say it that way. I don't think there's really a conflict there in sort of that component of our philosophical anthropology. Maybe the way that I've drawn it up looks, you know, problematic. Well, like, and again, correct me if I'm wrong, but I think Aquinas argues that these, these different parts, these are different parts of the soul, these are different powers of the soul. Yeah, and, you, and I think, yeah, we, we would say, right, it's a reason-endowed soul. It differs. The immaterial component of a human being differs from an animal, right? And, and so there's this funny word reason-endowed, but this has a loaded component. So is a child who's born without intellectual capability still have a reason-endowed soul? Yes. And that's why the term noose is something Paul's using. He's not using mind or intellect. This is something a little bit different. Yeah, sure. What is its, its, its version of it? Yeah, instead of penal <laughs> substitution that, everyone that everyone's comfortable with. Well, I mean, you're not comfortable with <laughs> it. Thank you. <laughs> Thank you. Uh, well, you know, look, I think, as you rightly pointed out, and as you rightly pointed out, as you rightly pointed out, a lot of times this is unpacking. You know, you pointed out to it's unpacking and making sure, all right, what's the context of what we're saying? What are we saying behind the term? And then we start to get into some details. But there are some pretty major distinctions, right? So when we talk about Christ on the cross, this is one of those areas. Can we say that on the cross, Christ died and took upon himself all of my sins? We can all say that, right? And that his blood washed those sins away. And I was redeemed. Okay. So that language works, right? It's similar to me saying to somebody who says to me, but you believe that this bread is the body of Christ? And I say, yeah. Paul says, this bread which we break, is it not the body? Communion in the body of Christ? And I just repeat Paul. Right? And then they go, okay, I guess I can't argue with Paul. <laughs> now, when we talk about Orthodox Christianity's view of the cross, 
you know, we're going to find a lot of areas where we can say, okay, he died on the cross, he shed his blood, he took upon himself the sin of the world, he died, he conquered death, despoiled Hades, rose from the dead, ascended into heaven to be seated gloriously at the right hand of the Father on high. We're okay? Okay, what else do we need to say? I always feel like they're trick questions. Like, no yeah. <laughs> I mean, so, so what I'm saying is that sometimes I think what happened was there was, a, there was, as you rightly pointed out, this raging debate going on all along and terms getting reclassified and argued over and it gets a little convoluted. And that's why, and I appreciate, Father Joe, what you said. You know, we're, we're cheering for that ancient Christian expression of theology, and I think that's our means of reconciliation. So that's why Pope John said, the church is breathing with one lung. Did you know he said that? Instead of two lungs? Yeah. He says, we in the West are breathing with one lung because our Orthodox brethren are not with us. This conversation has been happening in one part of the church. And until the other part of the church joins in and we begin to breathe with both sets of lungs, we're basically COPD or what are we? Uh, we're gasping for air, you know, right? So we can, we can recapture that. You know, it's, it's not, and I think this is an opportunity to do that, you know. Um, you overloaded? Yeah, stick around. Great. Sure, sure. <clears throat> Let us pray unto the Lord. O Christ our God, as we depart this evening, we ask that you would grant to each of us rest of soul and of body, that you would protect us from everything that is evil or contrary to your will, that you would raise each of us up in the morning to glorify thee, through the practicing of thy divine commandments. In so doing, may we be a light unto the world and bring salvation to those we encounter. For thou art our God, and to you we lift up all glory, honor, and worship, together with your eternal Father and your life-creating Spirit. Amen. Amen. It's great to be with all of you. Thank you for coming. Thank you. I loved it. I loved it. Well, thank you, Noah. Hello, podcast listeners. I am currently switching a lot of my podcast from my Bearded Disciple podcast to here on Ratio Christi CSU. Uh, this is one of those podcasts. Hope you enjoy.